Back when I was in seminary, one of my professors was Dr. John Feinberg. Dr. Feinberg is a theology professor and his specialty is what is known as the problem of evil. This means that his, his, he was an expert in the theological reasons why, even though we live in a world with pain and suffering and just struggles, we still have a God who's loving and good and faithful. Now, Dr. Feinberg's perspective on the problem of evil took on a new personal perspective in 1987. Because that year, his wife, Pat, was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. Now, Huntington's is a brain disease that just decimates a person's physical and mental capacities. It was essentially a death sentence that Pat would die a long, slow death, inch by inch, day by day. Now, at that point, the Feinbergs had three sons whose ages were five, through 11, so young boys, and to make this matter even worse, Huntington's is a genetic disease, which means that their sons had a high likelihood of having it as well. Dr. Feinberg said that in one fell stroke, we learned that my whole family was under a cloud of doom. He, he's written a lot on these topics. It was his expertise before he had kids, before he was married, and now he's living it personally. And he wrote on this, he said, although I had spent much time in my life up to this point thinking about the theological problem of evil. I couldn't make sense of what was happening. How could this happen to us when we had given our lives in service to the Lord? I knew that believers aren't guaranteed exemption from problems, but I never expected something like this. I was angry that God had allowed this to happen. I had all these intellectual answers, but none of them made any difference in how I now, for me, I arrived at seminary in 2005, so Pat's disease was quite advanced by that point. But Dr. Feinberg was still caring for her personally. She'd not yet gone to a care facility. And I remember that each day he came on campus, he'd be pushing his wife in a wheelchair across campus. She would stay in his office when able, but then when he had a class to teach, he would take her to the library. He would set her up at the table, he'd pull a drawer out of that old card catalog, and she'd just sit there at that table non-conversant, not really cognizant of what was going on, but she'd sit there staring off in the space, usually more so just staring down at the table, occasionally fiddling with the cars in the card catalog. She was just a shell of her former self by that point. Now we are in a series called Sacred Sorrow, and when we are struggling, when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, when life makes no sense at all, we have to face that same type of question that Dr. Feinberg was facing, the question of, okay, how, what do I do with all of my emotions, the anger, that frustration, that, that, that disappointment, that discouragement? What do I do with those, especially in light of the fact that we have a God who is good and loving and powerful? How do I reconcile those feelings with what I know to be true? Well, that's what we're looking at today. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dig into Lamentations 3. Father, we thank you that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when we face storms in life, storms that just rage around us, storms that just feel that, like they turn us upside down, Lord, we know in our minds that you are faithful, and that good, you are good, and that you are real, yet our emotions so oftentimes are telling a different story. 
And I pray that now as we open the Lamentations chapter 3, that you will teach us through these words that were written so long ago but are still relevant for our lives today. Teach us, Lord, how we can be honest about the emotions we experience, yet at the same time be faithful to you and grow in our trust of you. And so we lift up this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations was written by a man named Jeremiah. Jeremiah loved God, and he had a special responsibility from God to be a prophet to call the people of Jerusalem back to God. But rather than repenting, the people of Jerusalem continued in their wayward path, and what ended up happening in 586 B.C. was that the Babylonian Empire came against Jerusalem and destroyed the city and carried the people off into exile. Jeremiah, at this point, he loved the people, he loved the city, he loved God, and he was reeling at what had just taken place. And Lamentations is a record of Jeremiah's grieving process. Now, I want to remind us of the structure of Lamentations, which is a key part of how we understand and interpret it. We covered this a few weeks ago, but let me remind us that I want to think for a minute about the number of verses in each chapter of Lamentations. There are five chapters you see up on the screen the number of verses. Chapter 1 has 22 verses. Chapter 2 has 22 verses. Chapter 3 has 66. Then you have 22 and 22 once again. You can probably see a pattern here. Number 22 is very prominent. Even in chapter 3 that does not have 22 verses, it's still a multiple of 22 because 22 divided by 3, I'm sorry, 66 divided by 3 is 22. Now you may be wondering, what's the significance of 22? It is significant. In the Hebrew language, which Lamentations is written in Hebrew, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapters 1 and 2 follow the Hebrew alphabet in sequential order. Verse 1 begins with the first letter. Verse 2 begins with the second letter. Now you get to chapter 3 of Lamentations. It breaks that pattern a bit. But it still follows the alphabetical sequence, but this time it does it in triads, where it's basically like AAA, BBB, CCC, or if you take it literally in Hebrew, it's Aleph, 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 Bait, 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 Gimel, Gimel, Gimel. It goes like that in triads through chapter 3. That's how you have 66 verses, 22 times 3. And in fact, many of our English translations honor these triads and how they structure chapter 3 in our English Bibles. Now, coming back to chapter 4, you resume the 22-verse structure, following, again, the sequence of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 5, it's a bit deceiving. It still has 22 verses, but it's no longer alphabetic. But it's still a nod to the Hebrew alphabet because it has the 22 verses. Now, chapter 3, as we see in this book, is a bit of an anomaly. It's an anomaly in terms of the number of, of verses, 66. But there's also a very significant change in tone that takes place in chapter 3. Let me read for us verse 18, and I'm going to read another verse later on just to give us an example of the changing tone that takes place within the chapter. Verse 18, Jeremiah says, So I say, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Now flip over in your Bibles to verse 58, near the end of this chapter. Jeremiah writes, You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. Now do you hear the contrast there? 
It goes from just a sense of despair to a sense of hope. There, there's a significant shift in tone here. And in fact, the, the whole chapter follows the shift where the first part of the chapter is dark. It, it's practically hopeless. But then the second part of the chapter has a greater degree of trust, of hope, even of praise. And so an important question is how did this happen? Why did this change take place? Let's come back to verse 18. It says, My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Today we're going to look at how did this change take place in Jeremiah's life? How can the same change take place in our lives when we are facing deep and hard struggles? How do we get to that point of trusting and praising God? Well, verse 18 again shows this hopeless despair. My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. I mean, at this point, it sounds like Jeremiah is giving up. He's saying it's over, it's done. He feels like he doesn't have anything left to give. He's at the end of himself. He's throwing in the towel. My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Well, to get a little bit more background behind Jeremiah's struggle, I want to back up to the early part of this chapter just to give some more context. Look with me to, chapter, or to verse 1 of chapter 3. Jeremiah writes, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. And so, I mean, at this point, it seems like Jeremiah's grief is relentless. His despair is hopeless. He doesn't really know what's going to happen next. He is at the end of himself. And ironically, this is one of the reasons why I appreciate Lamentations. I appreciate Lamentations because it is so raw, it is so honest. It is not sugarcoating the emotions that we naturally feel when life is falling apart around us. It, it's just real, which helps us relate because the reality is life sometimes stinks. Our health fails. Loved ones die. We lose jobs. We don't have enough money. Relationships hurt. Children let us down. We let ourselves down. Baggage from our past haunts us. Our dreams don't pan out. Society can be ugly. The world isn't fair. And if you are struggling today or any time in the future, Lamentations is for you. Jeremiah here is struggling. And he says, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. He is struggling. But the book of Lamentations shows us that the Bible and specifically God meets us right where we are in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our doubt and questions. Even when we, like Jeremiah, say my endurance has perished, so is my hope from the Lord. I'm ready to give up. I'm done. God is still there to meet us. That's one of the reasons I love the book of Lamentations. Now I want to turn back to the end of this chapter. We already saw part of it earlier. Just to show this change that has taken place. It started out in a hopeless despair. But look with me now, picking up in verse 55 of Lamentations 3. Jeremiah says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. You cannot close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. 
You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. I mean, do you hear the difference here? Jeremiah is still struggling, but there's a sense of calm, a sense of peace, a sense that, you know what, God is still there. God hears me, and he really cares. And it leads to a completely different tone. This time, rather than hopeless despair, it leads to a hopeful trust. It's calmer. But I think a, a very crucial question here is how did this change take place? How did Jeremiah get from a point of hopeless despair to hopeful trust? This is not an academic question. Because all of us face hardships in life. Maybe even today you're going through the valley of the shadow of death, not quite sure how a certain situation is going to resolve itself. So it's not an academic question. It's deeply personal to ask of ourselves how in those times where we are feeling hopeless, when we are in despair, when we are struggling, how do we, like Jeremiah, get to this place of a hopeful trust in God? This is a key question when it comes to the spiritual value of lamenting. We've been saying through the series that lamenting, which is pouring out our emotions to God, is so healthy and so important. But this question of how does the change take place from despair to hope, despair to trust, that, that question is key to really unlocking the spiritual value of lamenting. And so to see the change of what really happened for Jeremiah and what can also happen for us, we need to turn to the middle of this passage. We looked at the beginning, we looked at the end, we saw despair to hope. Let's look in the mid middle to see the change that's taken place and how it happened. I invite you to uh, follow along as I pick up in verse 16, which starts in the category of despair. Jeremiah says, He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. I think what a descriptive phrase. Sometimes when we're going through those hard times, we forget what happiness is really like. Jeremiah says, my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Verse 19, remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now in this passage, we see this turn from despair to hope. And the key here is in verse 21, where he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Verse 21 is crucial. This idea of, of Jeremiah calling something specific to mind. He is intentional to direct his mind in a certain direction. It's kind of like when you're driving a car, you have a steering wheel in your car, that wherever you turn that steering wheel, your car will go. It's the same type of thing when you turn your mind in a certain direction as well. Yes, the lag time may be a bit longer, because when you turn the steering wheel on a car, if your car is operating decently at all, you're going to have an instantaneous response. For us, when we turn our mind to something specific, there may be a delay in the response. It may take time, but it will get there. But, but Jeremiah says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Whatever we direct our mind towards will deeply shape our lives and our perspectives. 
I mean, it should be no surprise that if someone in their life is constantly just focusing on what they're worried about and they're focusing on, on, on what's not fair and they're focusing on what others have that they wish they had, it's not going to be a surprise then that their life is probably going to be characterized by complaining and sadness and just feeling anger. Why? Because they've directed their mind continually to the negative parts of life. But on the other hand, you think about someone who, who is just thinking about things that are good and godly. They're intentionally directing their mind toward those types of things. It should be no surprise then that odds are good that their life, even if they face struggles, are still going to have a significant degree of peace, of patience, of forgiveness, of gentleness, of joy. Because the direction that we point our minds shapes our lives very deeply. This is a very biblical concept. It's not just in verse 21 of Lamentations 3. It's, it's throughout Scripture. I think, for instance, of Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul is saying steer your mind toward those things that are lovely and admirable and praiseworthy because he knows that wherever we direct our mind will deeply shape our lives. And that's the concept that, that, that Jeremiah is living out right here. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now, anytime you see a therefore in Scripture, ask what it's there for. It's there to point out the fact that the hope is derivative of something else. That the therefore I have hope points to some cause for the hope that therefore is there. And the cause is whatever Jeremiah is pointing his mind towards. So let's now dig into what Jeremiah is thinking about. He says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And then he gets into those things that he called to mind. And the things that he called to mind, I'm going to call them three anchors for your soul. These are anchors for your soul, that when you're facing storms in life, that these are things that you can cling to. You intentionally turn your mind towards, that can give you a sense of peace and hope and trust even in the midst of hardships. So three anchors for your soul. The first one that Jeremiah says he recalled to his mind is God's love and mercy, and specifically, specifically how they never end. Look with me to verses 21 through 24. Jeremiah says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God's love and mercy never end. The issue, though, is that when we are going through struggles and suffering, especially when it's prolonged for a period of time or when it's particularly crushing, when, when a dream comes crashing down in some format, the issue then is that we struggle, that we doubt God. We wonder, God, where are you? God, do you really care? God, do you really still love me? And the resounding answer in this passage, the resounding answer that, that was driven home in Jeremiah's mind is yes. He, Jeremiah realized that we never have to wake up in the morning and wonder, will God still love me today? Will God still be merciful today? Why? Because you know what it says? His mercies and his love are new every morning. Every day we wake up. We don't have to doubt God's love and his mercy for us in that day. God's love and mercy, they never end. 
And this is not some sentimental, touchy-feely sort of love. I mean, many times when you watch movies or you think about love, you think about the emotional side. That is not what Jeremiah is thinking about. He's thinking about a deeper love, God's committed covenantal love that he has for his people. I don't know exactly what Jeremiah called to mind, what he meditated on in order to get this renewed sense of, of hope that came from God's love and mercy. But let me just offer a few possibilities. Perhaps Jeremiah, as a faithful Jewish person, as Jews typically did, he recalled the exile. Not the exile, I'm sorry, the exodus. The X word, but the exodus. Back when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. They called out to God. Let me read for us Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, during those, days, uh, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. I think that phrase at the end is so powerful. God knew. He was not oblivious to what was going on. He did not um, just neglect what was going on. He heard the cry of the people of Israel. He had empathy for them. He cared for them. And out of that covenantal love, that commitment that he had made to their forefathers, he delivered them from captivity into freedom. Perhaps that is what Jeremiah called to his mind as he's intentionally steering his mind to something that gives him hope. He recalled God's covenantal love. The, the Hebrew word for this covenantal love is the word hesed. It's such a powerful word. If you ever want to do a word study, study the word hesed. It's this covenantal, committed love that never, ever gives up. And we see it here in Lamentations 3. We see reference to it in Exodus 2. Perhaps Jeremiah called to mind this refrain that reverberates throughout the Old Testament that we see, for instance, in Psalm 103. It says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's that hesed again, that steadfast, committed love. This refrain occurs throughout the Old Testament over and over and over. Perhaps that is what Jeremiah intentionally called to mind and that gave him hope and increased trust in God in the midst of his hard circumstances. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that he called something to mind that led him to dwell on God's love and mercy, how it never ends, and that gave him trust and hope in the midst of his trials. I think verse 24 is really key as well. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. What that's saying is that when we're going through trials, even if everything else of value, in our, of value in our lives is stripped away, if we still have God, He is enough. And what a powerful thing. And that's what comes from recognizing God's love and mercy never ends. So that is one key anchor for the soul that we can cling to when we're going through hardship. Another one is that waiting is not a waste. Waiting is not a waste. Look with me to verses 25 through 27. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation or the deliverance of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bears the yoke in his youth. That's talking about learning to wait early in life. That's a great lesson to learn when, you, when we are young. But it's this idea of waiting. Now let's do a quick survey this morning. How many of you enjoy waiting? Anyone? It's kind of what I thought. No one really likes waiting very much. 
Because when we are waiting, we are delaying the gratification for something that we really want. I mean, in our society has trained us more than any society in world history to dislike waiting. I mean, two days for Amazon Prime to send something to our doorstep seems like an awfully long time sometimes, doesn't it? Because we want it now. We don't like to wait because waiting feels like a waste of time. But what we see here that Jeremiah is clinging to, this anchor for his soul, is that in struggling, waiting is not a waste. He says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. You know, God's timing is frequently not our timing. We want it now. Or we wanted it yesterday. But God's timing is sometimes different. But God is good to those who wait. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Because we know that when we are waiting, we have a trustworthy God. It, it, waiting frequently pushes things out of our own personal control. But then that's, that serves as a reminder that, God, you are in control. I'm going to trust you. Waiting frequently tunes our heart to trust God, prepares us for his plans for us. I think of how earlier in marriage, Shelly and I were going through a process of infertility. And, and just, I mean, you look around, and you have a lot of friends who are having kids, and you think, we, we want kids too. And, and, and there, there are tears, there are lots of questions. And in the midst of that waiting period, God had lessons for us to learn. They were not easy lessons, but they were good lessons nonetheless. They were lessons about trusting him. They were lessons about surrender that we could not learn to surrender as well if everything was perfect. It's the way it is. When we go through hardships, that teaches us to surrender and trust more than when everything's good. Shelley and I learned lessons of empathy. How to give empathy to one another. How also to demonstrate and experience empathy in our relationships with others. We, we learn more clearly what God's will is for our lives. And we learn to embrace that will. Even when, when it changes the plans that we originally had for ourselves. It, it, it led to the lesson of, that, of, of just things that would be fruitful for ministry. Even to this day. Uh, that, that stems from lessons we learned back then. That period of waiting and discerning and surrendering. That's just an example of how waiting is not a waste. In our lives, and from our perspective, it oftentimes feels like it because we want things to be done now. You know, as we wait, if we are waiting in a healthy manner, lamenting to God, turning to him in this process, he is tuning our heart to trust him. And he's also tuning our lives to be prepared for his will for us. So the first two anchors are that God's love and mercy never end, that waiting is not a waste. And the final anchor that, that Jeremiah was really leaning on here is that the final word has not yet been spoken. The final word has not yet been spoken. And that's a good thing. Because when we're going through struggles, we are glad that we will not be stuck here forever. So the final word has not yet been spoken. Look with me to verses 31 through 33 says, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There's his hesed again. For he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men. For the Lord will not cast off forever. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God is faithful. God is good. And when we are going through struggles, we have to know that the final word on the situation has not yet been spoken. 
What that means is that our present circumstances will not be our circumstances forever, especially if they're, they're troublesome, if they're struggles. They will not be our circumstances forever. Frequently, our circumstances may improve here in this lifetime. But sometimes that's not the case. But even so, even if we die and, and the struggle that we've been facing is not yet fully resolved, death still doesn't have the final word. I mean, you think about uh, John and Pat Feinberg, my, my professor and his wife from seminary. Their issue was not resolved here on this earth. You think about Jeremiah. Jerusalem was not fully restored by the time Jeremiah died. Yet the final word had not yet been spoken on that ordeal. Think about us as we're going through trials. Yes, there are many times where things and the trials get better by God's grace. But there are also many other times where we face trials and hardships and heartaches that are not resolved by the time we die. But even then, the final word has not been spoken. That's the hope that we specifically have through Christ. I mean, in the New Testament, on this side of the cross, we see that death is not the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God because he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that death has been swallowed up in victory. So even if we die and things are not fully resolved with our challenges that we're facing, still the final word has not yet been spoken. And that is an anchor that we can cling to. It can give us trust and hope through the ordeals that we are facing. Now, the title of this sermon is something that to me is, is very meaningful. It's called From Despair to Trust. From Despair to Trust. And this is kind of an interesting thing to think about because realistically the opposite of despair is hope. So why not say from despair to hope? And the reason why I wanted to call this from despair to trust is because trust points to how we actually gain hope as followers of Christ. What we have to understand is that trusting God is a stepping stone to hope. Trusting God is a stepping stone to hope. Hope in itself is not an inherently godly or Christian thing. Because for many people, when they are going through struggles, their hope is that circumstances will get better. They may not have a real reason for that hope, a real foundation for it, but still they hope that circumstances will get better. So their hope is based on circumstantial realities. It may or may not get better. But for us as Christians, as people who have a belief in a God who is good and powerful and loving, our hope comes from trusting him. Trusting God is a stepping stone to hope that as we are going through trials, even if the circumstances are not get, getting better, our whole outlook can be transformed in a positive way when we recognize we can trust God. And that gives us hope. And yes, that hope may be fulfilled in this lifetime, circumstantially, may not be fulfilled till eternity, but trusting God is a stepping stone to hope. And that's what we see lived out right here in this passage. Verse 21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He has hope because he called something to mind that renewed his trust in God. We see the same thing down in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. The hope is derivative of recognizing that God is trustworthy and God is enough. Because he trusts that God is enough, therefore he has hope. Trusting God is a stepping stone to hope. And this is what finally transformed the perspective of Dr. Feinberg. 
I mean, he's written a lot about this. As I said, his expertise is the problem of evil. It was that way before he even got married. I mean, his, his master's thesis was on uh, the book of Job. His doctoral dissertation was on the theological reasons for the problem of evil. He could explain this all he wanted intellectually, but it was the emotions he was struggling with, the questions of, God, why is this happening? And for Dr. Feinberg, simply having a theological, intellectual explanation was not sufficient, especially for his emotions. He said for him, the turning point, and it's still a struggle. To the best of my knowledge, Pat is still alive, living in uh, a care facility, but alive physically, but not much else. He still has a struggle, but what changed his perspective was when he stopped trying to explain intellectually why this is going on, and when he reached that point of surrender, and that point of just trusting God, you are loving, and you are good. I'm going to trust in that. I'm going to rejoice in who you are. I'm going to trust in your character, and that is going to be the foundation of what's going to get me through this. It wasn't a hope in changed circumstances, because, you know, apart from a miracle, which to the best of my knowledge has not happened, the circumstances are not getting better here in this life, but remember, the final word's not yet been spoken. But he was trusting in who God is, in his goodness, in his love, and that is what gave him a sense of peace, even as the trials continued. So again, Lamentations 3.21 is the key. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. We have all kinds of thoughts that come into our minds. In fact, we have a spiritual enemy, Satan, who is planting lies in our minds at times. It says in John 8 that Satan is the father of lies. We have lies, we have doubts, we have questions that come into our minds, sometimes from the outside, sometimes from our own selves. In those times, we need to be intentional to turn our minds, steer our mind toward who God is, toward his faithfulness and his character. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That when we have a thought or question or doubt come to our mind, that we take that, we hold it up to the light of what we know about God and his character. We ask, is this true or is this false? And we seek to make it obedient to Christ. I love what Pastor Timothy Keller has said, that you said, you know what, we may hear in our heart that it's hopeless, but we should argue back. I love that idea, that we may have these thoughts that come to our minds saying, you know, it's hopeless, just, you know, it, it, there's nothing to do but despair, but we should argue back, because we have a God who is good and loving and faithful. We should argue back. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy. We live in this world that's filled with many trials, many heartaches, things that are not going as we would plan if we could control what's taking place. But Lord, our world is broken. You know that full well. We thank you that you give us hope. And Lord, I pray that you will continue to do a work in our lives today with the trials we're currently facing and in the future as we continue to face trials and heartaches. Help us, Lord, to turn to you, to lament, to wait, to trust, to come to that point where even when the struggles persist, we can say, God, you are faithful and you are loving. And right now, that's enough. Lord, help us in our struggles to take things day by day, but to see your new mercies every morning. 
and you carry us through. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful, for that is a foundation under which we to build our lives. We pray these things with gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.